Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 400 writers on the show, so go back and check the archives. I'm sure you'll find more creators and more shows that you're interested in. I'm a writer myself, having written with my partner, Ben Acker, for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, FX's Cassius and Clay, among others. We've also written comics from Marvel, Image, Dynamite, and more. We created a show called The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Maybe you'd like it. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more info. Let me know who you want to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, Uh, and follow me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It always makes me feel good about myself. There are a couple of live episodes this month, including Dead Pilot Society, in which we stage live table reads of scripts by professional writers that were bought but not produced. That'll be at San Francisco Sketchfest on January 10th at 3 p.m., and I have a script from John Hodgman, who will also star in it, and from Dead Pilot Society co-creator Andrew Reich, which is a really funny script. Performers include Josh Molina, Busy Phillips, John Ross Bowie, and more. Uh, I'm also hosting a panel at Sketchfest with the stars and showrunners of Gallivant on Friday, January 8th. Details about both of these Sketchfest shows will be at writerspanel.tumblr.com. There's going to be at least one live writers panel on January 24th here in Los Angeles at the 826LA space in Echo Park. It's a cool little library space. Uh, I think you guys will like it. I'll update you about that when tickets go on sale, but don't forget to check writerspanel.tumblr.com for links, updates, and more. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! David Goyer is here. Hello. Thank you for being here. Uh, We're going to talk about the new movie, which you are a uh, executive producer of. Producer. Just a producer? Producer's higher than executive producer. Executive producer's is that true lower in movies? Yeah. It's not in TV, though, right? No. It's that, yeah. In TV, executive producer is the highest on the pecking order, yeah. and in movies, producer is the highest. I never on the realized pe- yeah. that. Yeah. No I'm kidding. So, what is the difference in roles? In film? In film, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I mean, there's. There's not the equivalent of the Writers Guild or the Directors Guild in terms of film. I mean, there is a Producers Guild, but but they haven't sort of memorialized the rules in the same way right. that writing and directing uh, codified the rules. So, you know, one of the things that they've been trying to do is say that there's no more than three PGA producers, if you've seen that recently, mm-hmm. you know, Producers Guild um, of America, but they haven't been able to sort of memorialize that with the studio so you know producing is a i mean we're going down the rabbit hole already but it's a it's a it's kind of a wild west in terms of when you see some movies will have six producers and 10 executive producers and truthfully most of the time maybe only two or three of those names actually did anything on the film so some of them are sweetheart credits uh some of them are credits uh particularly if it's a film that's been independently financed uh you might piece it together through three or four different entities and so every one of those people want an executive producer credit and so 
most of those people didn't actually do anything in making the film, but they helped facilitate right. financing. Sure. Sometimes it's what we call baggage producers, so sure. that they're they're the, you know the manager or the friend or the loved one of a, at a star, you know. Um, uh, and so, yeah, someone it, involved with an earlier iteration of it, the film. So, an executive case, producer right? on a film can sometimes be a financier, hmm. or sometimes in the case of if I've got an executive producing credit, it's it's a there's this term I don't know if you've heard of super writer. So so there are well if r- anyone deserves r- it. writers, Simon Kinberg or Damon Lindelof or right. people like that sometimes that 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 are involved in more than just the writing mm-hmm. because sometimes they're involved in the casting or sometimes they know a lot about production and so sometimes the things that I work on I'll do a little more than just writing and mm-hmm. I'll get an executive producer credit. But in the case of being a producer, or on the case of The Force, that's a project that I originated. I came up with the idea, I helped find the financing, I picked the writers to work with, picked the director, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and this is what I wanted to talk about, uh, specifically with The Forest. Um, I didn't realize it was your idea originally. Um, Well, that's because we didn't say... Some some of the original things said from an original idea by... Mm -hmm. But I decided that, yes, it was my idea. I wrote up a, a little kind of mini outline sure. for what it would be. How many was that mini outline? Oh, well, the, the first one was only two pages, but mm-hmm. I think I expanded it to, I don't know, four or five pages. Okay. But I I have a lot of written by credits, and so I didn't need to hog that from some of the younger writers that we were working with. Mm-hmm. So I just said, I'll take a producing credit. That's fine. Um so, I mean, I guess that's the thing I'm curious about is, like, it's a story clearly you wanted to tell and to have told. Yeah, I mean, it originated with me. Right. So so why not write it yourself? I know you have a lot on your plate. Well, I, I could have, but but I've been moving into more and more producing. And, I mean, for a long time I've been... I've been producing things I've written or, or and or directed. But The Forest is the first project that I am not credited as a writer or director mm-hmm. on. Uh, there's a TV show pilot that we're shooting right now called Brooklyn Animal Control mm-hmm. that is similar in that I'm not a credited writer or director on that. But the fact of the matter is I probably have four movies that are going to be shooting next year that I'm pr- a, just a producer on, mm-hmm. quote, unquote. Um, it, it was, a, in some cases, um, it's a function of, of, I'm an executive producer on this film, Birth of a Nation, that's going to Sundance, um, where that was Nate Parker's yeah. script, and he was directing it. So my partner and I just, well, he was the main producer, and I just helped facilitate a tiny bit. So it was someone else's story that was brought to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also have more ideas than I have time to execute. And I've been working a lot more in television the last uh, five or six years. There's a lot of really talented writers in television that haven't crossed over into features. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I've been doing is is using writers that I know from television. The last writer in this film, Nick Antosca, was a writer on Hannibal. Oh, sure, yeah. And then and porting them over into features. Um, but I was writing Man of Steel when I came up with this idea, and uh, I thought it was an interesting milieu for a supernatural film and. Um, I couldn't write it right then, so I went to David Lindy and Tori Metzger at Lava Bear. I'd, I'd made a film with David at uh, Universal and said, I've got this idea. Why don't we work together to, to develop it? Hmm. And um, 
in this case, I ended up doing so much work on the movie that it that uh, and the writers were great, but but it might have been well. I certainly would have made more money if I'd written. <laughs> right, if you had that screen credit. Yeah. Um, so what? Uh, in general, before we we kind of dig in more on the forest, when you are acting as producer, what do you see as your role in sort of shepherding these films for which you are not okay. a writer or director? So the first thing that I see as my role is the the, the studio development process is very torturous. A lot of shitty films get made that way. A lot of good scripts get turned into shitty scripts. Yeah. Uh, as everything interesting gets planed down. One of the things that's happened, I've been in the business a long time. I started when I was 21. I'm 49. And when I started, usually there was one or two persons at each studio that would decide what films would be made. Mm-hmm. There's been this proliferation that they call the green light committee, and every year at the studios, it just seems to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Until now, in some studios, there's like 20 people that weigh in on which films will get made, and so it's kind of an axiom that the more people that are involved in the decision making process, the shittier the product becomes, because you've got 20 cooks in the kitchen instead right. of two people, and 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 suddenly, you know. This person or that person has an eccentric reaction, and and all the sort of interesting knots and whirls of of that piece that you're creating get kind of planed off, and it becomes more generic. Mm-hmm. And so, my, my first, I think, responsibility as a producer, because I I'd like to think that I've had some experience in telling stories and developing projects, at least some projects that are, are made it through the studio system relatively unmaimed. Yeah. Uh, is is to protect the story and develop the story, mm-hmm. and and more and more what I've been trying to do is develop these projects outside the studio system, and then package them, and then come to a studio and say, okay, here's the script, here's the director, maybe here's the actor or actors. Do you want to make the movie or not? Not do you want to tweak the script based on your bullshit. Little notes. <laughs> right. We're uh, showing you exactly what this movie yeah, the, will be. Are you in or are you out? Right. Has that and has that worked? Yeah. Well, it's working a lot. It's great. Uh, and and you know, there's four projects that that I developed independently outside the system, which is not to say they won't be released by a studio. Sure, of course. But I I think that by and large now at the studio traditional studios the odds are stacked against the the process is dysfunctional. It's almost. It, it, it almost works again. It's very difficult to get unless you've got, you know, an incredibly powerful filmmaker mm-hmm. like a Chris Nolan sure. that you can hide under. Uh, you know, um, it's almost impossible to push anything through that has any kind of creative integrity or idiosyncrasies. It's just it just gets turned into sausage. Mm-hmm. I imagine you must have seen this in your own career, especially prior sure. to, of course, uh, like the the Batman movies. Uh, I mean, I was I, this kind of heartbreak. I was I was lucky. Oh my god, so much heartbreak! Uh, <laughs> Tell me about the heartbreak. Well, because well, 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 first of all, I, the the first experience that I had that was good was New Line with Mike DeLuca. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I was doing Blade and Dark City, yeah. Mike was one of the sort of last iconoclasts. He was sort of like you know like Bob or Harvey Weinstein. He was one of the, he and Bob Shea. Those were the guys that would decide whether or not what movies would be made at New Line, and there wasn't some giant committee. Right. And they loved movies. And besides that, though, was it never mind the two people making the decision, but was it that they 
trusted. I mean, clearly looking at their output, they trusted writers and directors. They trusted voices. their filmmakers. They trusted the voices, and they loved movies. They would yeah. they would they would greenlight things based on a love, not on on you know what what the P and L said. P and L's profit and loss. They run these bullshit sort of analyses of like, well, if you make a movie for this with this kind of actor, with these kind of elements, it's like an algorithm. Mm -hmm. And then they run it through the computer and they say, we think this movie will make this much money. And it's complete bullshit. Anyone that tells you in this industry that they have an algorithm for like what will make a good movie or a successful movie is lying, is a thief. I mean, it's just bullshit. Sure. Uh, I mean, and you look at those New Line movies, and they had great success. They will, but they had success greenlighting movies that, on the face of it, seemed bonkers. Absolutely. So I'll give you an example. So Blade, uh, you know, I was a fan of the character, and Mike DeLuca was. And when I first got involved, they said, we want to make an African-American superhero film. Because they, I think they made Friday... Mm-hmm. Uh, or something, mm-hmm. or, or menace to society. I can't remember. So there's a market it, that was yeah. Being, they were doing not really they, being new elsewhere. line was starting. They'd made their mark initially doing kind of Nightmare on Elm Street and right. the urban market. Uh, uh, and um, so the, Deluca knew they they couldn't afford to do a Spider-Man film or a Fantastic Four film or the Hulk. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the kind of marquee characters. So they thought, well, what if we do a black superhero? L- literally, that was the impetus. And so. I met, and they wanted to do something Marvel, and so there was Blade, there was Black Panther (laughs) at the time, or there was Luke Cage. Mm -hmm. And so we talked about, well, which one should we do? And initially we thought, well, Blade makes sense because it sort of crosses over into horror. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have traditional superpowers, so he might be easier to produce and (laughs) kind of slightly lower budget. And so my walking, marching orders were... (laughs) Can you do a Blade movie for six to eight million dollars? That was the originally my marching orders, and I came back and I pitched them three movies. I, I remember I said it's the Star Wars of vampire movies, <laughs> a much bigger franchise than they were anticipating, way crazier. And um, and to Deluca's credit, he really liked what I pitched, and so this was the first time in my career that he just I didn't have to write an outline. He just said, "Write what you want to write." Wow, uh, and so let me let me just yeah. step back for one second. And so you were giving these marching orders of make a vampire movie for six to eight million, and you come back with three movies. What? Tell me about that that story development process in your head. So it's, it's, so what I wanted to do, a I I was a huge comic book fan growing up, and I loved I always loved the kind of secondary and tertiary characters. Sure. So. I, I could drill down really deep. So Blade was a relatively obscure character who hadn't been in his own comic book at that time. Yeah. He'd been a supporting character in uh, Tomb of Dracula. And, um, but, I, you know, I loved, like, Black Goliath, and I loved the cat, which was a super obscure <laughs> character who I think had only ran five issues and one, was one, in one issue of Marvel Team-Up. Uh, like, I just loved drilling down on the really obscure characters. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I like those, and uh, I like the sort of that little corner of the universe. So... I also I was interested in telling a story with Blade that was a classic anti-hero that was like not a particularly likable guy, mm-hmm. and I at the time 
wanted to do a vampire story, but I wanted to reinvent the genre and do something different that would turn it on its head. I wanted to do something that was an allegory for both race and, and AIDS was very much sort of in the public consciousness at the time. And, and now it's easy to point to, but at the time I was, I was going, um, uh, I, I was seeing some of the early uh, Hong Kong action films that hmm. had not, it, there would be like a festival every year where they, you know, for like a week where they would play 20 of these, they mm-hmm. would like buy with white hair or things like that. <coughs> and so I was watching these movies. Very few people were watching just sort of hardcore cinephiles. Yeah. It hadn't crouching tiger, hidden dragon. None of those had come out yet. None of them had had sort of big, big domestic releases. And so I had this crazy idea to do with a mashup between a kind of black exploitation film a kind of new version of a vampire film and also Hong Kong action. And DeLuca actually sort of knew all those points of reference. Mm-hmm. And, uh, God, this is an incredibly long-winded way of answering your question. So, uh, No, this is fascinating. I, it really I had this crazy idea for what the movie could be that mm-hmm. was... Well, you had these elements, yeah, right? Uh, yeah, and it was very different, really, from what Blade was in the comic mm-hmm. books. And... and and again, there, I was just given this freedom to just write what I wanted to write without worrying about the market, without worrying about the studio, knowing that Mike was a huge sort of cinephile, that he would get my points of reference. So I, I wrote this first script, and it was just a fever dream of craziness, and it had that scene of them dancing in the club with the blood coming out, just all, all that crazy stuff. <laughs> and, um, and it was very much, you know written just as this pure creative act turn it in to mike he loved it they did a budget and the budget was 45 million dollars so they wanted me to do six to eight million dollars originally with ll cool j was the idea yeah what yeah and yeah entirely different yeah Uh, and i'd actually had a couple meetings with him he's a really nice guy by the way that's what i hear and um and the budget came in at 45 million dollars and and it was r-rated and at the time there were very few bankable African-American stars. So. Not like now. No, no. And so there were, there were, you know, so initially New Line said, okay, I think they'd done deep cover uh, with Lawrence Fishburne. So they said, okay, if you get Lawrence Fishburne, we'll make it for 15. (laughs) If you get it, if you get Wesley Snipes, I can't remember whether, either White Men Can't Jump had just come out Mm -hmm. or, was about to come out. Right. He was even he emerging. He was on the verge, yeah. yeah. So they said, oh, if you get Wesley Snipes, we'll make it for 30. Oh, my God. Or if you get Denzel Washington, we'll make it for 45. It was literally those were the three guys. Fascinating. And we sent it out to Denzel Washington, and uh, he never responded. And, <laughs> and then Wesley engaged. And This was based on the script? Based on the script. Okay. I had an early meeting with Wesley, and he engaged, and he liked it, and he was down. He loved it. Um, and he also has an interest in sort of Asian cinema and yeah. stuff like that and martial arts. So it spoke to him. He, it did. We hit it off immediately. Yeah. Uh, he understood what I was trying to do. And so then we just sort of said, now we'll look for a director and we'll just ignore the fact that they had said, you, you need to make it for 30, <laughs> right. but it had budgeted at 45 million. <laughs> and then started this three or four year process where <laughs> different directors came in and out, like Sam Raimi at one point. Mm-hmm. I, I did draft wow. David Fincher. Uh, before what? Seven. Like he had made Seven, but it hadn't been released yet with New Line. Interesting. Uh, a lot of different filmmakers came in and out. And eventually, um, DeLuca said, I saw this little movie called Death Machine. 
that Steve Norrington had made mm-hmm. in Britain for like a million dollars, which is a crazy movie. done a lot with a little. And we met with him, and Steve, the idea was, okay, well, this guy did a lot with a little, so maybe he can make pull it off for... Yeah, he sort of had a Raimi vibe. Yeah, $30 million. Absolutely. Started developing it with, um, with uh, Norrington, who was great, and Gonzo, and had subsequently alienated just about everybody in the business. But I got along with him. Uh, and Why do you think you got along with him? I don't know. I, I, I kind of understood him, and I he he didn't... Well, one of the things that was is still refreshing about Steve is he just doesn't give a fuck, and he doesn't play by the rules, and he just doesn't... And that, in Hollywood, he's not very... He's the opposite of political. He yeah. would just say what he thinks. And um, <laughs> just... Um, just to insult a lot of people, which I found super refreshing. Well, it has to also be really helpful during the creative process. Yes, like yeah. someone who's not going to tap dance around. What There's no tap dancing script. with Steve. We, he, we we've remained good friends. That's great. Uh, but so were there. There must have been once Snipes came on, once Steve came on, a bunch of rewrites of the script. Yeah. Well, so that was what was funny. Was so I I think I wrote the first draft in '94 and it came out in '98. In in between oh, that wow. time. In between that time, uh, be, there were directors would come and go, mm-hmm. and which is a rarity. I stayed on the project the entire time. Yeah, well, not, not I, only stayed on, but were actively part of. The yes, conversation. yes. I, I and I think that was just because a. I think that the, the the vision that I created in the script was so specific and of itself that they were just like, okay, this guy, we don't want to fuck with it. <laughs> like he he's got to hit something in his head, right? And let's just go with it. But I did 27 drafts uh, over the course of those four years. And the first production executive that was on it had gotten fired like two-thirds of the way through. And and, and those drafts sort of went all over the place. Mm-hmm. And and at one point, Norrington got involved, and we were going through the process, and he wanted to go back and read my first draft. And this is not uncommon. He said, I, I like this better. Than draft twenty three or wherever well, we must, were at. It must have been a purer vision. Yeah, it was right? a purer vision. It hadn't because what happens when you develop things is if it's a scary movie on the first read, everyone says, "Oh my god, this is scary." On the second read, it's not quite so scary because they know what's going to happen. <laughs> sure. uh, uh, if it's comedy, the jokes aren't quite as funny, and so you find what I, you do what I call parallel writing, which is you're just changing shit to change shit because people have forgotten the feeling that they had when they first read it, yeah. and. As a writer or a director, you're always saying, "No, no, no!" But the, uh, it's going to be fresh for the audience. Mm-hmm. You've forgotten that experience. But well, that's something. Let me just bring yeah. it back to the forest for a second. Is you know, horror is really hard for I think exactly that reason. And it that happened on the forest. It happened on the forest. Able to maintain it the whole way through. It, it was, but that it, it did happen on the forest, which was, um, you know, there were there were things that were scary in the first draft, mm-hmm. and over the course of because I think it took this one took about a year and a half to develop two years that there was definitely story fatigue at a certain point set in. And, and even amongst us, we would question like, well, gee, is that still scary? Or is that not still scary? The other thing about horror is that so much of it's about sound and the look and now it's, and it's hard to convey tone on the page because a lot of it is without dialogue mm-hmm. and you have to do a lot of, we did this fortunately Gramercy slash focus. We're good about it. We just kept saying, no, 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 it will be scary. Right, and we, they trusted that you. Yeah, we promised. Like once, and and so much of horror is about sound. Absolutely. I mean, that's it sound. And, sound movie. and music is really yeah. where it comes together, and and they gave us an inordinate amount of of time 
uh, on the sound mix and the sound design for this film relative to the budget that we had. And it's, it's paid off. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it's worth it. Yeah, there's um, cool stuff in there. And there's a lot of cool sounds and a lot of cool things in the score. I worked very closely with Bear McCreary, who I've worked with a lot before. Um, it was a phenomenal I'll, score. Yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. A lot of love and care went into sound and music on the movie. That's great. I want to, just while we're on the topic, was there stuff um, from your initial sort of two-pager outline that wound up, like scares that wound up in that movie that you knew oh, yeah. would be part of this? Sure. Pillowcase man. I oh, mean, shit. Uh, <laughs> uh, that was he was always in there. Um, the there was actually something actually that was in some of the drafts that fell out of the final film that was kind of cool. Which I I I can't even remember why it fell out. But at one point there was this idea that um, that. Sarah had gotten a phone message from Jess. Mm, her while, sister. We her should sister. say, yeah. the story so is... The story is about yeah. a woman named Sarah, who's kind of all neat and buttoned up, who's got a kind of twin sister who's a fuck-up, who's, you know, kind of had problems with depression and had attempted suicide once before. And, you know, I think a lot of family members, a lot of families have someone like that in their family. And so Jess was the fuck-up, always the dark one, the fuck-up. And she'd recently gone to Japan to teach English as a second language, and they kind of lost uh, track of her, and she's gone missing. And so Sarah goes to Japan against her husband's wishes to, because she's always bailing her fuck-up sister out, who's always doing dramatic things, uh, to Japan to see what's happening. Because she's gone to this place called the Suicide Force, where people traditionally go to commit suicide, and starts this sort of spiral sand trap of the film. And, um, oh, so at one point there was, in one of the drafts, there was, um, this idea that Jess actually, Sarah gets a phone call from Jess while she's in the forest, sort of help me, Mm -hmm. I'm scared, I'm lost, and it gets cut out. And what we were going to do, uh, was at one point have Sarah, um, find the phone that Jess had called from mm-hmm. and realizing realized based on the outgoing message of the timestamp that th- this is an earlier draft that, that the call had been made after she was dead. Ooh. So it was just super <laughs> creepy, right? But but we changed the <coughs> plot a little but that was one idea that, that was just That's really neat. Yeah, anyway. That's cool. Uh, all right. Anyway, getting back to uh, Blade. So over four years, you're tearing through these drafts. Well, this is what I was going to do. Uh, so this was what was funny. Go back to the early drafts. So, yeah. so story fatigue sets in. Right, right. And it happened on the force. There's some things in the force that right at the 11th hour from the original draft that went back in. So over the course of Blade, it was 27 drafts. The original executive had been fired. A new executive had come in who, there was no institutional memory. Mm -hmm. And Stephen Norrington said, I I like the first draft better. I said, I do too. And so at the very end, like right before we started shooting, I I, I literally cut and pasted in one case an 11-page section from the first draft into draft 27. Because none of the executives at that point to them it was new <laughs> to them it was new and everyone said this is amazing and I didn't tell them yeah that's what was in the original draft <laughs> yeah it was amazing four years ago exactly I was great at it exactly uh, and that <laughs> but versions of that are quite common and sure. I, I've been I've also been in the instance of 
doing some script doctoring, which I'm sure some people have talked about mm-hmm. on the show, which is a little bit. Yeah. If you reach a certain level at your career, sometimes what gets happen, what happens is you get asked to come in and sort of surgically doctor something for like a week or so. Mm-hmm. So you're a higher gun. You know you won't get credit. Sometimes you're asked to punch up scares, punch up a character or something, mm-hmm. punch up an ending. You come in for a week. You're paid a lot of money because you know you won't get credit, you won't get any residuals, and you do script doctoring. And a few times in my career, I've, as a script doctor, come in and I say, well, show me all the original drafts. Mm -hmm. And I'll read the original drafts. And sometimes I've been an advocate for stuff that was in earlier drafts that I did not write that I thought, this is really good. Why did you take that out? Let's, and I've sometimes to the, to the, you know, happiness of some of the other writers that I was doctoring, they were like, oh my God, you put stuff <laughs> that was cut out three years ago back sure. here. And I said, but at, at that point, my responsibility is to the movie. I'm not going to get credit for it anyway. Right. So, well, I, you've been involved with so many of these yeah. that you've, you've seen it happen. You yeah. have the distance yeah. and the experience to see that and this sometimes is what you, happens. Sometimes so it, it, when you come into that process, you can almost tell, like, oh, Star X came on board mm-hmm. and sort of right. forced an notes. egotistical draft and you can just sort of tell where the bullshit comes in or right. you know sometimes yeah. a director will come on and it's a great process or sometimes it'll come on and it's and it's a crazy process and so whenever I script doctor I think of it almost as sort of like it's like the story version of the CSI team you know you know like you're going back right. and sort of trying to forensically figure out well where did this thing go wrong and sometimes you can repair it a little. Yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense. Um, the other, one of the things I really liked about The Forest is, I think different from some of the other work that we know you as a screenwriter from, in right. that this story is so straightforward. Right. Right? It's a very, I mean, there's yeah, it's a very depth clear, and there's nuance, yeah, yeah. but it's ABC yeah. is that story. Um, but some great movies a, are, are, are straight. I mean, The Revenant oh. coming out is a super straight story, you know. I haven't seen it. I, I, I but don't it's, want to. But it's just, guy gets left for dead. He's mm-hmm. like, I'm pissed. I'm going to fucking kill you. That's the story. Yeah. Oh, well, listen, I'm a great fan of those yeah. things, which is Unforgiven, right? Yeah. Super, super, super simple. I think some of the best stories are that. Um, but looking at, you know, the output for which we know you as a screenwriter, they tend to be more complicated stories with a lot of moving pieces. I think that that's because, well, first of all, this is a slightly smaller film. Mm-hmm. So um, it's slightly more intimate. I, I think there's an expectation, right or wrong, on the big budget movies that there have to be lots of twists and turns and oh my mm-hmm. gods and things like that. This is a quieter piece. It was always intended to be more atmospheric. Um, uh wasn't intended to be particularly tricksy. It was a, yeah. meant to be kind of an homage to you know uh repulsion and don't look now mm-hmm. and suspiria and things oh, yeah. like that there's a lot you know of don't look now i didn't even yeah well don't look now is my favorite it's horror film movie. of all time um and so that was very consciously meant to sort of uh uh you know follow in the shadows mm-hmm. of those 70s supernatural thrillers mm-hmm. um looking at the stuff that you do uh, that you are actively writing and like looking at your upcoming credits there's like 10 things on there <laughs> that you are supposedly and there's, and, and there's three working there's on. three that aren't public i'm sure huh. oh what are those I'm should not we gonna, not going like to say we talk about them right now I'm not going to say <laughs> this seems like the right venue um i've got three secret ones 
Oh. Are there things we could guess at? <laughs> Listen, they're whatever. cool. I'm looking forward to all of them. <laughs> um, but, you know, I feel like, like you say, the weight of the studios and the IP maybe. Well, that's gives the other you thing, so right? So many moving pieces. I think on that these, the, these I mean, stories. Now there's all this talk of story universes. There's a really great article in Wired about the Forever franchise. Our friend Adam Rogers wrote it. I was I was uh, I was an unquoted source for that article. <laughs> yes, and uh, the yeah, he, he, it was a really interesting article because it's a we're in this whole crazy new sort of arms race of story development and IP at the major studios now. Everyone wants to follow in the footsteps of what Marvel's been so successful at. And and we're in a this strange sort of you know kind of mirror world through the looking glass world where you know it used to be you did a movie and a movie had to exist on its own as this sort of closed end loop and if you were super successful you might do a sequel, but increasingly now people are thinking not only about trilogies can it be a trilogy can it be a trilogy can it be a tetralogy can it be right but can there be can it be nine can it be nine movies (laughs) and. And on one hand, that's great, but on the other hand, there's a danger that that some of the individual films just feel like kind of interstitial episodes in a TV show mm-hmm. and don't feel like a complete meal. Sure. Um, which is, I don't even know how we got onto that, but oh, the force. So that tends to be the burden that you have with sort of pre-existing, well-known IP. Mm-hmm. Understandably, they hope these things aren't one-offs. They hope. They can be three or four films, and then they can be an animated spinoff, and then they can be blah, 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 blah. But when you come up with an original idea like The Forest, it can exist on its own, and it doesn't have that burden, and hopefully it can be a more ostensibly pure piece of cinema. I have to say, that said, I'm watching it and thinking, I would love to see other story. You know, using well, this as the jumping off point for an anthology we didn't, is fascinating. We didn't go into it with that idea, but while we were making it, uh, I came up with an, an interesting idea for another movie that, sure. if we're successful, maybe we'll explore. Yeah. Well, it's such a rich area that's being explored, but and it doesn't feel like things are over-explained. I mean, there's so much. No, we we left a lot. Really great. A um, lot. A lot of it's ambiguous. I mean, me, you, you could do another movie with. Well, I, I don't want to say who survives. <laughs> right. But yes, maybe, but maybe you do a completely different set of characters or a completely different location. Because the thing that I was wondering about hmm. while we were filming this was. Okay, this this forest has unique properties, you know, heavy souls. You know, it's you you die there and you get trapped there. Are there any other places like that oh, on the planet? And are they linked in some oh, way? Or, let's make that TV show. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great show. Is that one of the secret projects? No. Ugh, fine, it's a public one. Um, let's talk about some of these. Uh, I mean, you're involved with the Superman Batman film. Yes, but I can't say anything about it. I don't want to know anything about it. What I do want to know is, um, you know, in working in sort of the hub of what will become an enormous franchise, what are the, the, what are the good things for you as a writer? You know, we know there, the, certainly there are challenges. On that kind of project? But on that kind of project. Whether it's that or I guess, well, ba- you know, the Batman it's, ones it's, it's, a, it's, a uni- it's a unique situation to be in a place where kind of money is no object. Like you can, you can write the biggest fucking thing you could ever think of and you can do it, uh, which I guess is a blessing and a curse also. Sure. Right. Because sometimes 
budgetary restrictions lead to some really interesting mm-hmm. creative solutions. Um, well, that's an interesting point. I mean, parameters often. I think parameters focused, are good. Right? Yeah, I, I I think they're great. And the danger of working on such a large scale is that there aren't any parameters effectively. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you've when you're working with 250 million or 300 million, I mean, I mean, you can basically execute anything. Um, yeah. which is great, but it's also dangerous because then it's too much of a good thing. Were there uh, let's let's talk about a movie that we've already seen so we can actually get into specifics, yeah. but like in Man of Steel, I imagine you had a similar sort of freedom. We did although oh amazingly we they, we did have to cut the budget. Really? Uh, yeah, I mean the first budget came in around 300 million and we eventually cut it down to about 260 million. And there were some. At that point, are we splitting hairs? <laughs> yeah, well, there was forty million. I mean, there was a, there was a, a bit. That's there was, a whole movie. There was one big action sequence that got cut out. Really? I, I mean, I know it sounds crazy. It was in the middle of the movie. There was a big action sequence that 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 got cut out because it was like a twenty-seven million dollar sequence, and so we just snipped it out. Um, and you know, I think the film was fine without it. Mm-hmm. The the scariest one for me was that there was talk. When we were trying to cut down the budget, at one point about my, my whole thing with with Superman and Man of Steel, what I first pitched Chris is I said I feel like no one's ever really focused on the fact that he's an alien, and that this is an immigration story. Mm-hmm. Everyone just took it on face value, and I adore the Donna films. That there's even a scene in which Lois Lane is interviewing him, and she says, "So you're from another mm-hmm. planet, Krypton?" And he <laughs> says, "Yeah," and she just sort of says, "Oh, okay." <laughs> right. And what I said to Chris, you know, right or wrong, I said. If Superman existed, if the world found out that he existed, even if he didn't have any superpowers, that would be the biggest thing that ever happened in human history. That right there, it would, just the fact that we know that there's intelligent life on another planet, it would, just his mere existence would completely change the flow of history. I said, that's a really big deal, and I want to tell a story about an immigrant and an orphan. And Anyway, I just felt like those things, some of, some of it had been dealt with in the comic books, but it certainly hadn't really been dealt with very much on mm-hmm. film and um, so I was really determined on Man of Steel to set a significant portion of the film on Krypton hmm. and to portray Krypton as an alien world so the first draft it was like a 40 minute sequence so we cut it down to 23 minutes mm-hmm. or something like that there was even more on Krypton and the point was to have a first act that was all on Krypton mm-hmm. which is not something you know, we'd saw, seen a tiny bit of it in the Donner films, but we hadn't really explored that world. And so that meant I wanted to see alien flora and fauna. And so the Haraka, which is the winged creature that uh, Jor-El that, uh, rides, that was in the script. And when he's firstborn, Kal-El, the, you see these beasts that sort of howl. Those are Rondor beasts, which are from the... Uh, but there were even more of them in the original draft. Other animals and creatures and things. Um, and uh, so the scariest thing so everyone responded to that they were like wow this feels different hmm. as we were making it and it, and the designs were incredible for Krypton and a lot of the audience has said that that was their favorite part of the movie you know And um, but the scary thing was right before shooting there was you know Warner Brothers said why don't we just cut out Krypton <laughs> just the whole thing this thing everyone loves yeah, let's yeah. get rid of it let's just start uh, with <laughs> Which him on you Earth. understand that panic, right? I you do understand the panic. It was, it was fucking expensive, <laughs> and they, it was like, 
we can save forty million dollars by just right. cutting it out. And I, just Chris and I and Zach were just like, no, this is what makes right. it different. So, this is the so, thesis of this movie. Yeah, but also, like right or wrong, Superman had been living in the shadow of the Donner films mm-hmm. from the seventies. It hadn't. It was like preserved in amber. The public's consciousness yeah. of Superman had not changed in over 30 years. And so we felt like in order to move forward, we had to do something that was different in the same way that we'd done with Batman Begins. I mean, if you look at Batman and Robin and Batman Begins, (laughs) really think about it. Those are, those could not be two more diametrically opposed takes on Batman. Absolutely. And we felt like Superman was in a similar place and that the, you know, the, um, Superman Returns mm-hmm. felt like a very loving continuation Absolutely. of the Donner movies. Yeah. I mean, it was sort of sort of in direct continuity to the Donner films. Yeah. And it hadn't gone in a different direction, and we felt like we needed to go in a different direction and to break from that. Um, do you... Let's talk about comic books. Um, you've gotten to write a whole bunch of these characters. You were a comic kid growing yeah. up. I have, um, I have letters printed in various DC and Marvel comics. You, yeah. what, what were your books? So you like the second tier books? What was the stuff? Well, no, I like the mainstream ones yeah. too. So I've, I have. Who were your guys? Well, my favorite character as a kid was the Hulk, but then I got more interested in the obscure stuff. And like, like a lot of Marvel people, I started out as a Marvel kid, mm-hmm. and then Teen Titans was my gateway drug into right. DC because that was the first sort of when DC was sort of consciously trying to yeah. do X-Men, you know, that was the, the Marvel Wolfman. Yeah. Marvel Wolfman, yeah. George Perez. I mean, they were very consciously trying to do a Marvel book. And I, like a lot of kids growing up, that was the first time we started reading DC. And sure. then from there we branched out. And then John Byrne, uh, mm-hmm. came over and did some stuff with obviously Superman and, and Batman. Um, wait, oh, letters. Oh, I've got, uh, I've got a letter in the Mark Grunewald run of Captain America. That's fantastic. Uh, which I still have a very a lot of fondness for. I but I'm I'm most proud of I, I have a letter in the Alan Moore run of Swamp Thing. No way. Yeah, in during That's the American hilarious. Gothic storyline. I can't remember what, what, <laughs> what issue and it was right in the middle of that run and I was theorizing what the source behind all these kind of sub things oh, were. Because you know, John Constantine was leading mm-hmm. Uh, Swamp Thing around America, mm-hmm. and uh, you must have been a kid, though. Yeah, when like, I was, I don't know, really little, eleven or yeah. something like that. That's really funny. I was, I, mean, r- I was, I was wrong. Look. I was wrong about my theory, but I, <laughs> but, but I was so proud to have had a letter printed. And then I have a letter in a really obscure DC um, title called Thriller. What was that? But Trevor Von Eden was the artist, and I think Robert Lauren Fleming was. I think they'd only ran about 11 issues. It was this really odd book and the first six or seven issues were really good and then I think they fired the writer and the artist and they went in a completely different direction and I wrote it, I wrote a letter saying, you, you're just going to ruin the book, you're going to destroy it. <laughs> and, and they printed my letter in what was the last issue before they, before they canceled it. What, what was through it? Was it an anthology book? No, it was, um, God, it, it was this odd, there was a woman in it who might have had supernatural powers who'd sort of pulled together this kind of sort of like the shadow this sort of dirty dozen group of people that had interesting skill sets and I I don't know where it went because there was some clearly some story behind the story and 
and she was sort of using these people to take down bad people in different ways. But I, sure, it was it was interesting. It was an interesting book that that's really well. I'll look for that. Um, anyway, so you, you talked about you know take, finding this take on Superman and getting yes. into this character's head, or yes. or more so what his existence in the world would be. Yes. Um, let's talk about some of these other characters who have long histories that mm-hmm. you've written. Uh, you know, the blade, the way in felt very personal and very natural. Have you, were you able to find a personal way into some of these other characters? Yeah. I, well, you have to, or I have to for all yeah. of them. So the way in for blade was, you know, he's got one foot in each world. Mm-hmm. He's got, um, and you know, I've often cited this, there's a sort of Zen Cohen that on the road to enlightenment, you must kill your father or kill your mother and kill Buddha, which, which sort of means that in order to become actualized, you have to sort of, sort of move beyond your tutelage or the sort of mm-hmm. things that you've, you know, you have to become your own man, your own woman. And so I thought with blade, I was going to do that literally. And so, you know, he literally kills his mother, you know, who's a vampire. Mm-hmm. And then he's trying to kill his vampire father, which is Deacon Frost. Hmm. Uh, and and then he kind of has to kill Buddha, his mentor, which is Chris Christopherson Whistler, which is a character I created. Yeah. Who ironically, I this is just a tiny thing. There's something called <laughs> separated rights, which uh, if, if you create mm-hmm. if an original screenplay and original characters the writer's guild carves out certain rights in merchandise and because so much of blade was um new from the comics uh and and principally whistler was a character that was not in the comic books the writer's guild decided that i should get shared separated rights with marvel and it created oh this God. really uh, uncomfortable situation because there was a Spider-Man cartoon at the time and they decided to put the Whistler character in the Spider-Man oh, cartoon wow. and it turned out they didn't fully have the rights to do it. <laughs> so I made a little money on that. Sure. <laughs> Not to mention the action figures. Yes. Yeah, there were Whistler as- yeah, action figures. no, I remember that. I mean, like, Blade was a big deal for comic So Blade readers. made three movies. There was a short-lived TV show. There yeah. were two video games. There, were, there was a lot of there were action figures. There were reproductions of the sword and the glaives and things and like that. And this is, I mean, for people to know, this was before Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. This was before. Oh, Marvel, Marvel was in bankruptcy yeah. at the time when we really did Blade. Yeah. Um, anyway, but like, uh, like Batman. This is a character we've seen in so many different... So you still need a way in, right? Yeah. So my way in, Chris's, our way in... Yeah, I mean, obviously you're working with collaborators. Yeah, was we decided that there there were three Bruce Waynes. There was was the public persona of Bruce Wayne, who's sort of like the playboy, which which is really... Uh, you know, a, f- a fictionalized personality that he creates. It's not him. Mm-hmm. And so he does it in order to, to, it's kind of like Zorro to detract, you know, right. people from thinking that he's Batman. So I'm going to do the exact opposite, but that's not who he is. So there, then there's uh, Batman and then there's the private Bruce Wayne. So there's three characters. And when we were writing the script, we were very clear about which, version of Bruce Wayne we were writing and what we decided was that Batman is actually the real Bruce Wayne mm-hmm. that's who he is he's that fucked up 
And the private Bruce Wayne is the guy. These are all the thoughts that he doesn't want to think. He becomes Batman so that he won't hmm. think about sure. in order to all get through his day. Yeah, in order to he get through to his day, Batman. Batman is his drug. <laughs> Batman is his alcohol. That's interesting. And so we treated Bruce as an addict. Mm-hmm. And Batman is he can't he can't just be Bruce Wayne. He doesn't want to be Bruce Wayne. He's uncomfortable, which is why ultimately in the Dark Knight Rises that led to the third movie, which is he kind of realizes that without Batman, he isn't anything and that he's got this death wish. That's what Alfred is afraid of, is that he's never sort of there was never an end game. Like in his mind, if you gave him sodium pentothal, he was like, yeah, I'm going to die as Batman. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to retire. I want to go out right. in a blaze of glory. And so for us, the interesting idea with Dark Knight Rises is, well, does he have the courage to hang up the cowl? And and be the private Bruce Wayne. Mm-hmm. Can he overcome that? That's an interesting way to think of the character in looking at any of the movies. I mean, that has to inform every scene sure. that you're writing. Sure. And I feel like, I mean, knowing Batman Begins, I think, better than the other ones, just thinking back to every scene has that in it. Yeah, right? well, they all do. I mean, but that's also what we did with the Joker, which is <clears throat> what was unique about the Joker with respect to Bruce Wayne is what we try to do with the Joker was to say he he says to Batman I see you mm-hmm. now all these other people don't see you but I see you I know what you are I know what you're doing the only difference between you and I is I'm just upfront about it with everyone yeah I mean and I think it's a good and important writing lesson yeah right, to know your character this to know your characters and to know what you know I I I think a lot of us in real life if if we're actualized at all or, or self-examining or if we've been through therapy or anything like that or if we keep a journal, if if we lead a, a sort of considered life, I mean, a lot of us, our actions boil down to just a couple of simple things that happened to us in our childhood, mm-hmm. so, often their relationships with our parents. And I think understanding that is the key to not kind of perpetuating the damage. I mean, I think sometimes there's a lot of damage that happens in familial relationships. And um, unless you can understand those patterns, they just keep perpetuating generation through generation through generation. And so for me, it's always about whether it's, you know, also in adapting Da Vinci on my TV show. Mm-hmm. What's it, what what is the character sort of what's driving the character? What is the core chip on their shoulder and it could be a positive thing or it can be a negative thing but i think most of us you can boil a lot of our actions down to one or two things mm-hmm. whether or not it's conscious is a different sure. question but when you're writing a character yeah. it doesn't have to be conscious of that character but no it's conscious to you, you have to be a conscious important. to you as a writer you have to say yeah. what does a person want what are they after yeah and i think this is sort of getting back to what i was mentioning earlier that you know the the plots may be complicated Right. But the characters have a your characters have a directness to them, which well, I think is really important. I think with some beginning writers, it's kind of a, a sort of stunning thing. Is sometimes if you ask a writer, like, well, what does really that character want? If if you can't sum it up in one line, then your script, your novel, it's it's on shaky ground. It's yeah. not you're not. You don't have a good structure. You you should be able to sum it up in one line. So Man of Steel is super simple, right? He's an orphan. He's a guy who had two fathers. 
He's got a father and a stepfather. And the fate of the planet will rest on which father he chooses to align himself with. His Kryptonian heritage or his Earth heritage. Will he father and fall in the footsteps follow in the footsteps of his Earth father? Or will he follow in the footsteps of his Kryptonian father? His stepfather or his father? Yeah. This is, uh, I'm certain you know, being a smart, self-aware guy, <laughs> this is a theme for you. This sure. This person in two worlds. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, it is. And, I, I've, and I've also realized that a lot of my stuff, uh, a lot of the stuff I've written, Blade, Batman, Man of Steel, Da Vinci, um, uh, that that a lot of these characters have father issues, which mm. which I do in real life. So, <laughs> so yeah, sure, you can work some stuff out. Yeah, and I, the- I, yeah, I had a torturous relationship with my father, mm. and 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 I think a lot of my life is about trying to repair that relationship. Sure, is it? It's. I can't imagine it's ever a conscious thing when you're sitting down to work on something. No, it's not. But what's interesting, but it becomes conscious in the writing process. Mm-hmm. So I didn't. I started out. On Man of Steel saying, I want to tell a story about an immigrant. And I realized that I was telling a story about a man who's trying to reconcile these two fathers. It it came out while I was writing it. And while I was writing that film, over the course of the year or so that I was writing the first draft, um, a a bunch of things happened. So I became a stepfather. Uh, I became biological father. And my own father died all within the course of the year that I was writing oh, that. So, so it obviously found its way into the script because there's a scene in Man of Steel. People say, write what you know, and you think, well, how could you possibly write anything about Krypton or Batman? I'll give you two examples where I did. In Man of Steel, there's a scene with Kevin Costner and the young Clark in which he tells him he's an alien, that he's from another world. And um, it's kind of a heartbreaking scene. And... And uh, young Clark says, can I keep just pretending I'm your son? And um, and then his dad, Jonathan, says, you are my son, but somewhere out there you have another father, too. So that I just ripped off my stepson. Really? Yeah, he was like four. And it was like the first time because I've been in his life since he was one or so. Mm-hmm. He's got a biological father. He sees us both, mm-hmm. but uh, he spends a lot of time with us. And he he, he was around four and he he he. It clicked for him. He didn't remember life before me right. or without me, but it suddenly clicked for him because my first biological son was born that I was not biologically his father. Sure. He just kind of assumed everyone had two biological dads. He, didn't, he hadn't really put it together. Right. And he said that's – we had that talk about, you know – how I'm his stepfather, but I'm his younger son, hmm. uh, his younger brother's father. Hmm. And is that different or not? And it was a really heartbreaking discussion. Sure. And but that, that and I put like, that in the movie. That seems like a perfect way to put it too. Yeah. Well, but you but know, the, but I think really warm but I, and honest. But I think no one had thought. You think about Superman, you think, oh, I'll, I'll buy these big action sequences. But no one had sort of boiled it down into that. But another another example on Batman Begins is that. I was conscious of the fact, Chris and I were both conscious of the fact that some of the previous Batman versions, like they all took place in Gotham. He never got outside of Gotham, and it all felt like it was very set-bound. Mm-hmm. So Chris, at the beginning, wanted to shoot a lot of stuff on location, but we were also conscious of we wanted it to have a bigger canvas. And so 
we determined, if you look at all three movies, that each of them has a sequence that takes place outside, not just of Gotham, but outside of America, yeah. which was very intentional, which hadn't really been done much in the other Batman stuff. And so we were talking about an, an exotic, we were mining Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. We were talking about an exotic location to start some of the Batman uh, story. And I trekked in Tibet. Uh, when I was younger for six weeks. So I brought all my, my photos from Tibet in with Chris while we were working on the project. And that became the basis of going to Bhutan and all that. And so, uh, you know, that was a case where my direct experience sort of feathered its way into this Batman script. That's how he wound up in Bhutan. That's really interesting. That's one of the things I did want to talk to you about, and, and now we've covered it, is, you know, how to tell a personal story even amid these You have huge... to. You can have it. Here's the thing. I mean, someone can make a, a, a really compelling movie for 60 grand, a kind of micro-budget film, and, and you can be completely engaged. There was there was a beautiful film called Short Term 12 that was Great made. Movie. Amazing movie about these people working at a sort of home for troubled kids. I, I don't know what that film was made for. I think about a million dollars. I think it was Brie Larson's mm-hmm. sort of first big film. And uh, actually, uh, Rami Rami, the guy from uh, Mr. Robot, was in it as well. That's right. Yeah, yeah, Anyway, it's an incredible film, and it's super touching and emotional. And, you know, it was made for a million dollars. And another guy that I'm working with named Jim Burkett made a great film called Coherence for $60,000. You should check it out. It's a really, it's a cool science fiction film. Someone described it as a cross between, like, Primer. Do you remember that mm-hmm. time traveling film and a Robert Altman film, which oh is like a perfect, God. perfect description. That's anyway, great. Jim made it for sixty thousand dollars in his home. It's a completely compelling, thought provoking, interesting film. The point being, if you have interesting characters and an interesting story, it doesn't matter. You can make it under the most primitive circumstances. You can shoot it on your iPhone, right? Or you can make a movie for $300 million with all of the visual effects in the world, and it can be a piece of shit because you're not engaged because there's no there there. There's no at the heart of it. What the fuck is the story about? And so I think there's a tendency sometimes with these big budget studio films to just pile set piece upon set piece or complication upon complication and, and, and to forget that you still have to tell a story. And and it's got to be moving and you know, hopefully heartbreaking, and you got to lean in, and and people forget that a lot. Absolutely, I think that's true for anyone looking to write movies, to write TV, write anything. I mean, my favorite—I have a lot of favorite moments in Batman Begins, but one of my most favorite moments is when, because it's really about what the heart of the film was about. So, Batman Begins is about a story about a kid wanting to live up to the legacy of his father. Thomas Wayne mm-hmm. and his his father was a great man and he wants to live up to that legacy and at a critical juncture in the film uh, he feels like he's failed and so I said one of the things that I wanted to do with Chris is we said to I, I wanted him you know he's literally living in the house that his father built or his father's father Wayne Manor mm-hmm. and I wanted him to just get kicked in the nuts and have and I wanted to burn Wayne Manor down, literally. And DC at first said, you can't do that. <laughs> and I said, but it's, it's, it's the best thing that can possibly happen to this character. What's the, you know, I like right. sometimes to say, what's the worst thing that can happen to this character? The worst thing that can happen is he's a guy that wants to live up to the shadow of this mythologized father. 
And literally because of his fuck up, the entire thing is destroyed. And by extension, Gotham City, because that's also the the house that his father built. And so I said to DC that we have to do it. It's what's right for the character. He said, but, but, but. And I said, Chris came up with this. He said, but we can rebuild it. We can show you (laughs) in... The epilogue, him literally rebuilding it brick by brick. It's okay. Unfortunately, they embraced that. Also, but, hey, DC, it's pretend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but you know, and if you notice in the second film, in the, in, in the Dark Knight, mm-hmm. he's not even in the Batcave. Is that true? He's, he's, hanging out, he's hanging out in that tower in the middle oh, of the city. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but that was what was right for the character was yeah. to burn it all down. And, and that's what led to that great sort of exchange with Alfred where he says, you know, why did we fall so we can pick ourselves up again? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to I ask you a couple more things and we'll, we'll wrap up, but um, were there jobs you've had in, in, in any capacity uh, in, in the writing process, whether it was something you started from scratch or something you were brought in on or something you doctored, where it was a challenge to connect to the material? Completely. What yeah. do you do in that circumstance? It's really hard because I. It's champagne problems. I mean, sure. it's amazing to be well paid to write, but but one of the things that I discovered was it's still work though. Let's it is still work, and it, if you don't connect emotionally, it's really hard and it's torturous. And I, I, I as I gained a certain amount of, you know, um, I don't know, credibility with the studios, I, I was no longer in the situation of just desperately pitching stuff Mm -hmm. you know but being offered things and and there was a sort of middle period in my career where i was offered a lot of things and the money was amazing and i'd bought a house and or i had kids and i thought you know there's a project that will remain nameless where um i I just bought a house with my uh wife and we just had um my first biological son and Mm -hmm. but we two we were supporting two sons and and i got offered to do four weeks of work on this project that will has since come out that will remain nameless and and i i I didn't have an affinity for it Mm -hmm. but they were offering me a lot of money and i turned it down and um and then they came back and they offered more money and i turned it down and then they came back out and i turned it down and i said i don't have a feel for this right was it was that based on the script or the or what you knew the existing both both was? I just okay. I just didn't uh, this this was not it but I'll give you an example like okay. I I never played with Transformers as a kid mm-hmm. I I just didn't so at one point in time sure Transformers came my way and I just I just don't right. I don't have a sense memory for Transformers yeah. so I knew enough now to know that that's not a good thing for me to do right. but in this particular instance. <laughs> They offered a crazy amount of money. My wife said, we just bought a house. You just say, we need to put these kids through college. Take it, you idiot. And I did. And it's the hardest thing I've ever worked on. And, you know, I, I don't think it's the best work I did because I just, it was, I took it, the job for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. What, but so how did you work on it on a day-to-day basis? Like, how did you find, you had to find some way in or you had to give yourself I had to tasks. do the best. I, look, I always, yeah. I, I, th- I have a strong work ethic and I, I did the best I could, but it's not, you know, you're not crunching numbers. It's not, it's a, you're an, you're an artist. You're, it's like writing a song or, you know, painting a painting. It's your inspiration has to come from somewhere and it's, you can't just like turn on the faucet and say, okay. I'm going to be amazing now, you know, you have to, 
and very you know any kind of filmmaker it's your work is dependent upon what's happening in your personal life and your psychological sure. life and and um i so i learned that if i if i if i don't feel it um i i I shouldn't take it. So I turn down a lot of things now if I don't feel yeah. it. Well, it's, it's, one, it's a nice position to be. It is a nice. But and I'm not, yeah, it's, two. again, champagne problems. But. Yeah. but but again, it is. It's hard work. What does your day-to-day look like when you're working on a project? Um, I'm pretty rigorous. I mean, I, I, used, I used to only write one project at a time, but I've been writing a long time now. And so I'm pretty regimented. I, I get up, breakfast with the kids, get them off to school, um, I I have, I think a lot of writers have rituals. I have my rituals. Mm-hmm. I, I I literally meditate, mm-hmm. uh, and then I'm a big green tea do, drinker. Uh, For how long do you meditate? Twenty two minutes. It's it's TM. <laughs> it's transcendental okay. meditation. Uh, so I meditate. Uh, I make myself some green tea. Uh, I sit down. If I'm if I'm if I'm on script, I have a program that uh, disconnects from the internet. So That's I plug great. in like, if I'm writing. Just writing one thing, I usually write from for about three hours. So for 180 minutes, I can't web surf. Turn wow. off the phone. I have my own office that's separate from the house, and and I just write. Um, if it's if I'm on, on two things, I will literally say, okay, I'm going to write this project from nine till 10:30. I have a little timer. Split that three hours, and and, and it's that specific. And then timer goes off. That's then I jump great. to the other project, That's and then great. and then in the afternoon, do you, do you have uh, yeah. music on? No, I don't. Some people can write with music mm-hmm. or in cafes. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. I, it's got to be totally silent. Don't have music. Some people have soundtracks that they listen mm-hmm. to. Some people like. I was actually when I was watching the forest, I was like, I can't wait to write to the soundtrack. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great soundtrack. Uh, but like every person's different, and you just need of to know you find what, what works for you. You know, and I have these sort of rituals that work for me. And I, I, I also tend to have, because I can now, if it's a really complicated script, I usually go, I usually go away for about three weeks a year for a week at a time. Mm-hmm. And I call it breaking the back of it. So I usually find that I just need to just, unfortunately my wife is, is, is supportive of this. Uh, I have to, it really inhabit it for a while. And, and so I'll go away for, Usually, I go to Jackson Hole of all places. There's a lodge I like to go to, That's great. and then for a week. And that t- during that period, I'll write like twelve hours a day. Mm-hmm. And you, is it, is that for a story that's already broken? Do you break the story under that? Usually, I do the, like a, like an outline and research first. And this is when I'm actually writing okay. scenes, and I'll usually try to just immerse myself and get a big chunk of it done during that sort of fever dream period and um it might be 30 pages it might be 50 pages whatever it is but but i once that period's done i i feel like i've the i've inhabited the characters and they've inhabited me and i, I have their voice mm-hmm. and then i can go back to the real world and my kids and my wife and and keep that voice in my head while i'm sure doing You've those got the momentum of it. yeah um let me. We're we're gonna wrap up um, because I know you have lots of things to do. Um, I have to get my teeth cleaned next. Go get your teeth cleaned. <laughs> I promise it will be as good as this. Okay. Um, I thought we'd get back to this, but I want to ask you this: uh, in working on Superman, Batman, yeah, is you know the the stuff you described about Bruce Wayne and Batman and the other Bruce Wayne 
Are those the characters you're writing in no. the new movie? No. I, I mean, I can't. I, Warner Brothers doesn't really want me to talk about it. But sure. no, it's a different. People that have worked in comic books or read comic books are, are used to this concept of, of rebooting a character. Of uh, doing a different take on a character, so. holding several versions of a character. So, yeah, in your holding, head. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, the Grant, it's not even the, the, the Grant, you're right. The Grant Morrison Batman is different yeah. from the Frank Miller Batman. Is different from and are often all Denu- concurrent, and, and many are concurrent. Yeah. Uh, and so that's not an alien concept mm-hmm. for me. I mean, I think I'm one of the few people in history that's probably cinematically done mm-hmm. two versions. Yeah. But that wasn't so. No, when it came to this Batman, everything that was involved in the Christmas. So you have to find one, a new way. Yeah, we just said okay, guy. that that doesn't exist in this universe. It's a totally different take. I won't tell you what that take is, no. but it's but what something a, what completely different. What a fun different. game to play, and what a great new way to play with these toys with which you're somewhat familiar. It, it was an it interesting was, exercise. I get to do a different version of this guy. Now. Yeah, that's really cool. It's interesting. You just say pretend that doesn't exist. Yeah. And this is something else. What would it be? That's neat. Um, before we wrap up, are there uh, films you have seen lately that you recommend? Television that you are loving and don't miss? Stuff you're talking about with your friends, your spouse, etc. Like a lot of people, I was blown away by Mr. Robot. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, so much that I've, I've never seen such a crazy 180 in terms of a network. Yeah. You know, in terms <laughs> of what USA was programming, and then so I have a pilot that's shooting right now with USA. Mm-hmm. And uh, crazy, crazy, crazy pilot. And um, and in my wildest dreams, I never thought USA would want to do it. And this is before we agreed to do it with him before Mr. Robot had come out. Oh, interesting. And they kept saying, well, we've got this thing called Mr. Robot. You should watch it. So they sent it to me. And I just said, holy fuck. What, that, like, this, is ins- this show right. is insane. I felt This the- is not Suits. No, no. <laughs> and I felt the way, and it's very of itself and very specific and the rhythms of it. And I, and I love that. And I, I felt the same way about the pilot for Mr. Robot that I did when I saw Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. I just felt like this guy's onto something and it's unique and it's a specific vision and it's sort of defiantly saying fuck you to the television landscape. And so that gave me confidence with USA that they were trying to do something That's different. Great. I feel the same way about Fargo. I oh think God, the second, the I think the second, I love the first season, but I think the second season is even better and even more confident. Mm-hmm. And I love it. I love how distinct it is and how unique it is. And it's, it's defiantly itself is the phrase I use. And I'm, it's sad Absolutely. to say, but I think there's more interesting stuff happening in television these days than in film. That, that is true. But you don't get to have a $300 million budget. That's true. But, <laughs> but then, you know, but if you're telling, Game of Thrones basically does. I That's mean, true. Just, I mean, they, I don't even know how big their budget yeah. is. But to make a 10-hour movie, movie right. is pretty wild. Um, well, thank you for being here. The Forest, uh, as this comes out, should be out this week, right? It's like first week January of January. 8th? Yeah. Did so I get that right? January. Okay. Uh, people should see it. It's really good. Uh, you guys did a it's really different. great job on it. It's, it's different. It's, it's creepy. It's provocative. Yeah. It's fucked up. It's well acted. It's well directed. Natalie Dormer. She's well, I already knew she'd be great in it. But for me, one of the other revelations was Taylor Kinney. He's terrific. So he was not... I don't even know who he is. Okay, he's on a TV show, uh, Chicago oh, right. Fire. He's on the Chicago yeah. shows. Yeah. And he was not originally cast. And uh, another person was cast, and three weeks before shooting, fell out. Hmm. And we were scrambling, and Taylor came up. And um, to be honest, I hadn't seen Chicago Fire. And uh, he's a real revelation to me. I mean, I think he's 
awesome in the movie, and he plays a really difficult role, which is he just vacillates between you like him and you don't trust him, and you like him and you don't mm-hmm. trust him, and that extends all the way to the very end of the movie. I think he's going to be a big movie star. I mean, I know Natalie is, but I think Taylor is too. Yeah. He's also a nice guy. That's <laughs> nice to hear. Uh, thank you so much for being here, David. Thanks. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 